For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. So, oh, okay, Peter, uh, welcome. Uh, so, our guest speaker today is Osho Peter Coyote of the Mythical Ontario Enlightenment Guiding Teacher. Welcome, And uh, I want to give you this introduction. Most of you know of Peter Coyote as a film actor. Some of his films are E2, Dragons. Inner Moon, Aaron Brockovich, I want to remember. And also, Peter has been the narrative voice for most of the wonderful documentaries by Ted Burns. Peter is also an author. But some of us particularly, while I, where I fall, which is a memoir of his early days as a people. Thank you so much, Tigan. Uh, it's, it's wonderful looking at this at this group because I had a very clear idea of what I was going to talk about and looking at Tigan Zendo, it seems completely unnecessary. Uh, <laughs> what, I, what I've been working on for the last couple of years, actually a long time. So let me go, let me go, go back a little bit. Um, my practice is, is a secular practice. And I can see by looking at this room, so is yours. So you're not the actual audience that um, this talk is addressed to, but there might be there might be some articles of interest or that will provoke some thinking and some questions and stuff we can discuss. So let me go way back to um, sometime in 1999. I had a very um, shattering Kensho experience during the... Uh, uh, the great cold session, and it was not the ecstatic uh, event that I was expecting or had been seeking since I was a teenage boy, overweight, shy around girls, and had 
fixated myself on enlightenment is something is a cross between Superman and a samurai. And I'd come out of my Zen practice had arisen out of 10 years in the counterculture and 10 years of addiction and excess. And I had made of Buddhism something of a fixed idea, something of a, a, a shelter from the anarchic and chaotic life that I'd lived and also from my anarchic and chaotic inner life. And so when the world stopped, the first thought that came through my mind was, what am I going to do now? Because I realized that Buddhism was completely empty, completely ungraspable. And I had erected it as an edifice to protect me from the chaos of the world. I'm grateful that I was in Sashin because there's nothing to do but keep sitting and keep working on it. And somewhere during the course of the day, I realized, well, the Buddha must have had that experience, too. And yet, and it took him 49 days to decide to teach. So what did that mean to me? And what it meant to me finally was that in spite of the essential emptiness and ungraspability of the world, Buddha's innate compassion came forward and he thought, I'll try. Maybe I'll help some people, maybe I'll lose some, but I'll try. And I was very moved by that. You know how it goes in Sashin. Everything's raw and open. And um, I thought, I'll try. I'll try that. So after the Buddha had his insight for about the first 500 years, basically, Buddhism was a collection of monks and nuns. And the feeling was that you had to be a monk or a nun to get enlightened and to get the benefits of practice. And the, the purpose of laymen was to support the monks and nuns. And about 500 years after uh, Buddha's death, the thought arose that, um, wait, maybe desire isn't the problem. Maybe we don't have to turn them off. Maybe we don't have to dedicate all of our energy to quashing desire. What happens if we turned them on? And there was a great effulgence, a great release of energy. And people became craftspeople and musicians and artists and yogis and yogins and um, went out in the world. And around that time, the idea of Vimalakirti developed. I, I don't know if you know who Vimalakirti is, but there's he's in every Zen temple in Japan. There's a picture on the altar of a guy with hair. And Vimalakirti was, we don't know if he actually existed or if he just represented the Mahayana ideal of a secular practitioner. But Vimalakirti was supposed to be the smartest guy next to the Buddha. And he was, he was rich. He had servants. He went to the racetrack. He went to the gambling halls. He went to the brothels. He went everywhere. And he was always renowned for preaching the Dharma. That's what he did. And my lineage, my teacher's lineage, is Vimala Kirti, Vimala Sangha. And we are very much a secular uh, practice. 
And we developed because as much as I appreciated my training at Zen Center, and my training was like Tigans, although although not as not as uh, not as deep because I was living across the street. I had a family. I was working. I was not a monk, but I was going to Zen Center every day, and I was learning and studying. And I would say that the first three or four years in the rigid schedule of a monastery and practicing in this pretty strict Japanese way that was imported from a Heiji probably changed me more than anything had changed me in, in my life up to that point. And I was, and I remain very grateful to it. But after about four or five years, um, I had sort of a privileged position that I should explain. So I was working for the governor. I was working for uh, Jerry Brown for his first two terms. And my wife was uh, Baker Roshi's private chef for a series of uh, luncheons he had called the Invisible University. And Richard Baker was something of a genius at integrating and making Zen practice very high status and of great interest to elites cultural elites, intellectual elites. And so because of my proximity to the governor and because of my friendship with Gary Snyder and a lot of the California poets like Michael McClure, who were longtime Buddhist practitioners, I was a member of that invisible university. And my wife was like a, a Zen student getting $200 a month for long, hard days. And as time went on, it began to bother me that um, the Roshi was driving around in a $200,000 car and discussing a $200 lamps for his infant daughter's room. And the Zen students I knew were making $200 a month. And some of them were getting up so early to work at the bakery that they could no longer sit Zazen in the morning. And there was something that was... Uh, contrary to my lefty political beliefs in both political anarchism and just the compassion of my ancient Jewish socialists and communist forebears. It began to rub me the wrong way. And I began to associate it with something I became, <laughs> I nicknamed Japanismo. And Japanismo to me was a kind of slavish imitation of Japanese culture and the way that we received Buddhism through Suzuki Roshi was at first very, very informal. When Suzuki Roshi first came to America, there were no ceremonies. There were no, uh, not a lot of chanting. Uh, he kind of loved these wild and woolly young American hipsters that were just, fanatic about practicing Zen. He couldn't believe it because in Japan, it's not that way. Many of the monks don't meditate unless you're at a training monastery. And, you know, they work hard in temples. They smoke cigarettes. They bet on the horses. And it was not, it was not the, the, the Zen that Suzuki Roshi imagined. And as Zen Center developed, he called in a Japanese priests to help him from Eheiji. Uh, Katagiri Roshi came in, Mayazumi came in, 
and they began to teach uh, Zen students um, a lot of the formal rituals and formalities of Zen practice, Japanese Zen practice. Remember, Buddha was from Nepal. He didn't speak Japanese. He never went to Japan. And his evocation of the practice was not in Japanese. So I began to be curious about, well, what's the Japanese part and what's the Buddhist part? Because there were some downsides to the Japanese part. And I'm, I'm treading delicately here because I love the Japanese aesthetics. I have tatami mats in my zendo. When I do ceremonies, I wear my okasas and robes. But there are two aspects of Japanese culture that kind of um, took root in America in not such healthy ways. And one was a very strict sense of hierarchy. And the other was a sense of authoritarianism. And as I began to watch more closely or from this kind of growing uh, critical distance, I realized that after Suzuki Roshi died, Richard Baker had realized that it would be much easier to raise money to support a very elegant, refined, high Episcopal Zen institution than a bunch of guys sitting in a room and in street clothes. And so Zen Center became this uh, this kind of institution that's in many t- cases, it's considered the mothership of Zen practice. But I have to be careful when I do Dharma talks in other places. When I, I was at uh, Houston once and Galen uh, uh, chided me for referring to Zen Center without saying San Francisco Zen Center. She reminded me that there are others. You know, Tigans is one such. Austin is one such. And each of those has their own style and their own authentic way of of being. So the way I explained it to myself or, or clarified my intention to myself was it was kind of like, you know, loving and being angry at your parents. You don't want to hurt them. You don't want to disrespect them, but you're not going to do it exactly their way. And so I began to think in every culture that it went to, Buddhism assumed the protective coloration of that color, of that culture. And for instance, a lot of the things that we think of as Buddhism really are byproducts of Hinduism. Buddha didn't talk a lot about reincarnation, for instance, and body hopping from from life to life. But that was a very strong aspect of Hindu culture. And so he kind of let it alone or gave it some some credence. And in every culture, Buddhism assumed aspects of that culture. And we have to remember that for thousands of years, Buddhism was always under the authority of a king or a ruler. And that it was an authoritarian entity that they just had to deal with. Uh, I've had people uh, tell me I could never study Zen Buddhism because the Zen priests blessed the kamikaze pilots going off in World War II. Well, maybe they did. Um, Maybe they just had compassion for these young men being forced to commit suicide. 
but it was only recently that Buddhism has been freed of state controls. And so to me, it's a very, very interesting time in our in our practice because we're really developing some authentic practice. So what my work has been since leaving Zen Center, and I've just I've just written a book about it, um, <laughs> which the relaxation of your Zendo has just shot me in the foot because this is exactly the way I, I see Zen practice. I see people sitting in T-shirts and rock suits, and they might have Japanese names, they might not. Um, and so what I set out to do is loosen the Japanese gift wrapping, not throw it away, not discard it, but loosen it so that we could get a better look at the Buddha's actual gift. What are the Buddha's, the Buddha's actual gifts? Because when we think about it, most Buddhists in America are secular. Not all Buddhists meditate. Not all Buddhists shave their heads. Not all Buddhists are celibate. Many marry. So working out what the Buddha taught and what's congruent with what the Buddha taught and what's congruent with our culture began to really interest me. And I began to see that authoritarianism and hierarchy was actually counterproductive. Um, if the teacher represents the apex and the repository of all knowledge in the community, if he or she is infallible, it's a very dangerous situation. Um, I lived through the scandal at Zen Center where Richard Baker was such a charismatic person and so skillful and so um, self-involved. And Ken Show was never discussed. Enlightenment was never discussed. It became kind of a mystified idea. And the thinking kind of went, well, if anybody's enlightened here, it's got to be the boss. And so if I have a trouble with his BMW or his you know, museum quality statues all over the place and my lowly salary. It's my problem. And so certain kinds of discontent metastasized in the community. And it was a very pyramidal and hierarchical structure. And when he left, Zen Center went through a great upheaval. And people were so afraid of power, of any kind of... Uh, assumption of power, that everything was democratic to the point that almost nothing could get done. And to me, that's a direct result of hierarchical thinking and authoritative thinking, which is much more pronounced in, in Japan. So I don't know if you're familiar with the Japanese board game Go. It's a, it's a game that's played with black and white stones on a big board. And my father was the first Caucasian that was ever appointed uh, a beginner at the professional level in Go. And for many years, he had played chess every week with a man named Edward Lasker, who was a grandmaster. And in the 50s, both Edward and my dad gave up chess for Go because they found it more subtle and more challenging. And my dad joined a, a Japanese businessman's club in New York called the Nippon Club. And I used to go with him sometimes and sit. I, 
I just watch these Japanese people getting hammered and having a good time and being like loose and relaxed and not at all like what I was seeing around the Zen temples and centers. And when I went to Japan and actually met Japanese Zen people, I got the same impression. Uh, they were they were fun loving. They took care of business, but there was nothing of the uh, forgive me stick up the butt rigidity that I began to see in a lot of Zen communities, and it really worried me and bothered me because I could see that Americans were confusing the Japanese culture of Zen with the Buddhist teaching. So I set out to write a book about it. I've written a book which is going to come out next spring. It's called Zen in the Vernacular. And I began to question, why are we walking around in Japanese clothes? Why are we calling each other by Japanese names all the time? And there was there was a reason behind it that was that I'd like to think is larger than uh, something just, you know, nationalistic. We take vows to save all beings. And so to the degree that we draw lines between ourselves, either in our own minds or in our own behavior or in our own costumes, we separate ourselves from the broad mass of American people. And the unintended consequence of that is that Buddhism appears foreign. It appears exotic. It appears weird. And so I wanted to take this on and explain in human terms what meditation does, what Kensho is and isn't, what enlightenment is and isn't, and to help help Americans recognize that many of their experiences are parallel and commensurate with Zen experiences. I've known machinists who lost themselves in their work. I've known women who lost themselves in knitting or tatting or cooking or taking care of their children. Um, and, you know, as Dogen cautioned us to study the self, forget the self. So that's been my underlying uh, motivation in the last five or 10 years. And, of course, I had the laugh when I came onto your Zendo today. I told Tygen what I was going to talk about. <laughs> he was just good-humoredly mum. And so I sat and I'm sitting looking at a room of people exactly as I imagined, wearing American clothes and doing good, strong practice. And um, I'm heartened to, that I'm seeing more and more of it when I go to uh, American Zen centers to speak and see my old friends and even the the folks that have been trained at Zen Center. When I go to their Zendos in other cities, things are are loosening up. And so the question that I would I would put before you, or that I would be interested in hearing from you, is the degree to which uh, American life is coloring your own sense of practice. Whether the idea of lay priests and lay transmission has meaning to you, which is something that Thea Strozer out here, who started the Brooklyn Zen Center, um, is doing. 
she's actually recognizing that a priest is an avocation. A priest takes care of the Sangha. And it doesn't have to be uh, a promotion within an institution. Uh, neither does my brown robe have to be a promotion. Um, that you could be, why couldn't you be transmitted as a lay teacher? And we have out here lay entrustments of green rock zoos, which were started, started by Mel Weitzman, to recognize teachers that are uh, students that are advanced enough to teach, but they don't want to be independent, so they work under their teacher's tutelage. So I'm interested, I'm interested in hearing from you, actually, if you consider these ideas. I, I doubt that I'm the first one that's ever thought of them, and how you're thinking about them, and how you apply them, and the struggles you're having with that, and where you feel you've made breakthroughs and struck ground that it would be useful to have known outside your own sangha that um, I'm trying to share. So as a core, I'm not going to drone on too much longer, but as a corollary, I'll give you one example. Um, one of the things that I'm always on the lookout for is the assumption of Zen personas. You know, if you don't talk about Zen in the same way you talk to your neighbor, you're constructing a Zen persona. You're constructing a self that is not exactly your authentic self. Your authentic self is being revitalized and revisioned moment by moment. Your authentic self doesn't even exist until you meet someone else. And so the idea of spiritual practice as being different from our everyday life and spiritual behavior as being different is to me a warning sign that we are reifying Buddhist practice. We are separating it from the actual living vital impulse of breathing in and out in each moment and contacting each person in a fresh instant and constructing this self that answers the door at some Zen centers with a frigid, may I help you, which is like kissing a refrigerator. So I'm very interested in to know if other people are thinking about these kind of things. And if so, um, I'm seeking instruction from fellow practitioners. Uh, this is not, this will take several centuries probably to uh, immerse itself in American culture. Um, but in order for it to do that, it has to be a recognized subject and it has to be something that we put into our daily practice and thinking. So that might be enough for me to say, and I'd be really interested in uh, inviting questions and criticisms and challenges and whatever you might hear, because Tygen's an old friend, and I know he hasn't let any numbskulls hang around too long. So I'm, I'm hoping for instruction from this group as well. So thank you all very much for listening, and please help me out here. So Peter, thank you so much. Uh, 
just to say that this is a non-residential uh, and we're all out in various ways in Chicago. Can't hear Tigan. Oh, sorry. Uh, I should turn towards the microphone. So, Peter, I was just saying that we have a non-residential lay sangha. People are out in Chicago doing all kinds of things. We have many people uh, doing doing wonderful, helpful, right livelihood of all kinds. Uh, we do have. I don't know if Douglas is here online. He is. Uh, Douglas Floyd is. Uh, our, our, I see him, Douglas. He's a lay entrusted teacher. He has a green rock suit. So just to say, we're doing that too. Anyway, uh, thank you. Uh, I uh, welcome people here in the Zendo and people and many people online who have questions, comments. Uh, for Peter, please feel free. And David, you could call on people online, and people can raise their hands here. I, I will. Yes. So if you're if you're online, please do use the raise hand function because there's more than one screen, so I might not see your hand and. Um, maybe Tigan will see hands raised here. In any event, if you're if you're waiting to, to ask a question, just please please make noise so that we know. Paula, I'll go first. <laughs> Hi, Peter. Hi. Let me see. I I have my view on speaker, so I don't know if I'm I'm seeing the. Okay. If you uh, if you'll turn off the speaker view, I think it will revert to the spotlight view, and at that point, I think you'll see Paula, who is approaching the camera. I, I see Paula. See, yeah. Right. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay. How are you? How are you? Good to see you again. Thank you. Um, I wanted to ask this first before we break out this conversation. As an actor, as someone who understands the power of image of mask. What do you feel the archetype of the priest or the robed person can play in American vernacular Buddhism? Because, I mean, I, I totally um, agree with many of the comments that you're making, but I'm still myself trying to explore and understand because American culture almost gets too secular and too laissez-faire. You know what I mean? Anything goes. So what is this archetypal role? What does it do? What can it do in our American culture that it won't do to Japanese culture or Chinese culture, Indian culture? I'm sure you've thought a lot about that as well. Yeah. Well, you said two things. So I wrote this book called um, The Lone Ranger and Tonto Meet the Buddha. And it's a book for about 40 years I've been doing these classes where I use acting improvs and uh, exercises to kind of loosen people up for half a day, stretch their ideas of where they're comfortable and what their self is. Then I put a mask on them and I hold a mirror up to them. And in, in 40 years, I've never had a person not get taken over by the mask and have about 10 minutes of ego-free freedom. And... By the time they've done that three times, they're ready to listen to Buddha's ideas of no fixed self. So that's just a little parenthetical. It's not an answer to your question because you said the word mask. But basically, the priest takes care of the Sangha. And the Sangha, the ultimate Sangha, is all beings. So the reason I call it uh, an avocation 
In Japan, <clears throat> you'd go to Oheiji for two years, three years, and you'd train and then you'd take over a temple. And you'd spend the rest of your life in service. And it's pretty hard scrabble. And it's, you know, weddings, birthdays, holiday celebrations, charity, taking care of the sick. It's, it's a tough life. And the problem with American monastic practice is there are no temples. So people get become priests almost like a graduation ceremony, affirming the, the, the duration and length of their practice. But they don't necessarily leave the institution. And this is something that's been very difficult for Zen Center because you have people who've given their entire lives to this community. And now they've had to build this place, Enso Village, to have places to house old priests who are moving out. So to me, that's like a little like acting students who say, oh, my God, I love acting school. And they stay in acting school and they forget that unless you get a job, you're not an actor. And unless you're actually helping people, you're not a priest. So the ways in which you can help people are numerous. I mean, they're 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 to be invented. But, but the reason I call it an avocation is that priests are opening themselves more so than most of us to the suffering of others. And they are responding to the suffering of others and they're making themselves available to the suffering of others. And so whether you think of it as holding space in a ceremony to help a ceremony function or whether you, you're thinking of it as counseling Sangha members, or whether you're thinking about it as meeting homeless people face to face. I always carry pocketfuls of dollars so that I can always respond and give someone money. And if I don't have money, I stop and I talk to them. And I think of that as an extension of my priest's work. And so I think really any time that you, that you reach out, selflessly, you're operating as a priest. And I have the same Koromo as you do in the black robes, and I love them, and they make perfect sense in some contexts. When I'm doing a wedding, when I'm doing a naming ceremony or a blessing, well, I like to wear my regalia because people like it. It's serving a function. Same thing with funerals. But most of the time, right here, I'm in my day clothes. These are not... These are not even clothes I wear outside. I do wear them outside, but not often. So <clears throat> I'm meeting people face to face, and I'm always a priest. And so I'm always looking, is there something I can do here? There may not be, in which case I'm just person to person. But I think that the avocation is that instinct to be open to the suffering and the discomfort of others even if it's even if it's posited as aggression or something that's uncomfortable to deal with, a priest has made kind of a vow to face it and try to interact with it in some way. And I mean, I, I sort of that, that's the best of my understanding. So, yes, in a secular culture, there are not always opportunities to uh, to show the formal aspects of being a priest, but there's always grace before you eat. 
there's always taking a moment before a meeting, asking people to sit for five minutes. You know, there's always, and, and most importantly, your own demeanor and kindness and your posture and attentiveness that people notice. When I went to Hollywood, I was in a quandary because I'd spent 10 years as a digger anonymously doing works anonymously without money, without regard to status or anything. And I was going into Babylon. I was going into the world center of self-indulgence and narcissism. And I thought, how am I going to behave? I'd already been sitting four or five years since then. And I realized that I couldn't do much about uh, the content of the movie I was hired to make. I mean, if it was too odious, I'd just turn it down. But I could control how I made the movie. And so what that meant was being polite to everyone, treating everyone exactly the same, from the star to the little PA on the set, being the first on the set, knowing all my lines, keeping the atmosphere light, uh, breaking tension when I could. And in every single case, at some point, someone would come up to me and say, hey, do you have some kind of religion or something? And I'd say, why do you ask? And they'd say, well, I don't know. You get along with everyone. You never argue. You're perfectly on time. You know your work. You make people feel good. It seems that maybe you do. And I said, well, I do. And so those things are noticed. And those things are as much a priest's behavior as your as your robes. Is that is that helpful at all? Yes, it is. Okay. Thanks for the question. I think there's a question now online. Actually, some several hands are, are up. Um, let's see. Um, uh, How do you make those hands go up? Um, there's a little hand raise function down at the bottom. Um, several hands are, are up. Um, where it says reactions. Yeah, down where it says reactions. But I think the, the first hand that went up, I think, might have gone away. Does someone know themselves to have been the first person online who raised their hand? I do this in class. <laughs> <laughs> Please, if, if you know that, that you are that person, please just unmute and speak, and I'll spotlight you. Chikyo, there you are. Um, is, your, is your question, you put it in chat. So Chikyo's question says, thank you for your talk, Peter, and your lovely response to the first question. I look for the book. Okay, so that's not a question. So I think that maybe um, the next person, either Nicholas, I think I saw Zengu's hand, maybe next. Please just. Hi. Un- Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Um, hi, Peter. Good to see you again. Um, I don't. I don't see who's so. Well, in a minute, I'm about to add him on the spotlight. Okay, <laughs> thanks. We have such a big crowd today that it's, uh, I, I have to resort to other measures. Can you see me now? <laughs> I'm getting there. I'm looking for you. Not exactly. Please him before I. Ah, gotcha. Okay, I'm going to spotlight you. <laughs> bring you out into the light. Yes, that's who I thought it was. Okay, uh, hi. How are okay, you? hi. I'm good. Good. Good to see you again. Uh, I I don't even know for sure what I want to say because I, I was just so thrilled to hear this talk because uh, this is the conversation that I'm having with lots of different Buddhist practitioners and. You know, I've been at this for many decades, and I've been in communities that have had scandals, so I know personally <clears throat> what that's like um, and and how 
you know, traumatizing that is in, in, in some ways. But I'm, I'm just, I'm so excited for this book. I think you're um, really speaking what is, I'm hearing, you know, like the railroad tracks. So mm-hmm. um, thank you so much. And I think that's pretty much all I have to say, but well, can't wait. Your lips to <laughs> I, I think it's going to be big. I'm, I, I'm, my body, I can feel it in my body. I'm very kind of excited. So, well, this was original, Nicholas. This was originally two books. The first one was called uh, Things As It Is, uh, Vernacular Zen. And the second one was called Engaged with Things As It Is. And it was basically a book about how to participate in politics as a Buddhist mm-hmm. without recreating the problems that you're trying to solve or becoming the problems you're trying to solve, you know people screaming for peace, for instance. And my publisher put them all together. I had originally put it as a one, it turned out to be one 350-page book stop that I thought is just going to hold doors open somewhere. And one of my students said, hey, there's a perfect cleavage here. It'll make two smaller books. So I presented it to the publisher as two smaller books, and they thought, oh, wow, we want to make this one book. So... We'll see what happens. Um, I'm glad to hear that it resonated with you, and I'm glad to hear that. Um, I mean, you probably wouldn't be studying with Teigen if you weren't thinking along those lines. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Teigen and I talk about Bob Dylan all the time and current events, and so I think there's a there's a certain openness of mind that must permeate your sangha, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I'm glad that I, I, I'm in harmony with it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I think I saw your hand. After that, I'm adding. Uh, uh, yes, thank you. <clears throat> uh, Peter, I don't know if you remember me. It's been 30 years since we, our paths spent time together. It looks well, like this go. And I, I, of course, I remember you. Yes. What are you doing in Chicago? <laughs> well, I'm, like you, I'm, I'm, in, I'm the ether as uh, the, 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 the cloud has carried me here. Uh huh. Yeah, I, 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 come on. I remember you perfectly. Yeah, I, I'm actually at Oakland. For my, for my first wife. But yes. you're actually my elder. I don't, I don't feel like I should be talking to you. You were in Zen Center long before I came. Yes, and, and, and uh, I must say that I have almost, almost 180-degree view of, of Japan that you do. <laughs> I, I probably disagree on almost every point. But I 100% agree with your 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 concept of everyday practice. seems seems beautiful and spot on. And uh, I, you know, Suzuki Roshi used to say that if we take if we take our our Japanese practice and prune it too much, it'll just grow as, as a plant. It'll just grow out new leaves that'll that'll be more uh, Judeo Christian than Buddhist. And so that the I, and I slowly and over the years, you, many of the Japanese practices have worn away and been replaced with with American practices. So I'm I'm always concerned about trying to prune the, the plant too steeply. And as you yourself admit, there's there, you haven't run across that much uh, 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 authoritarianism in Japan. I haven't run across any. I mean, it's it's, it's not it's not not endemic. Richard Baker was his own, own, his own particular self, 
and much more of American phenomenon than a Japanese phenomenon. They don't have people like that in Japan, except for maybe the, some movie actors get into that kind of role, like the fellow that played Zatoichi. But anyway, mm -hmm. um, I, I would love to talk to you about it more sometime. I've, I've retired from my building career, and I'm now uh, spending my time with Buddhism. And um, uh, I, would, I, would, I would like, if, if it's possible, to, to discuss some of this stuff on, in some other venue with you. Well, I, I would, uh, first of all, I would ask Tygen to give you my email. And I'd love to pursue this. Um, I stand corrected about Japan. I've only been to Japan once. And uh, I mean, I thought it was the most fascinating place I'd ever been. The idea of being in a culture where everyone seemed to have made a vow to do their absolute best at whatever they did was staggering. So I'm not really qualified to speak about it in depth. But when I, I went to Rinso Inn to give uh to bow in and offer incense to Suzuki Roshi. And I hung out with Hoitsu and Shungo, and they were so relaxed and so fun and so uh, so great to be around that they also helped color my view of what an American Zen practice could be because I had no sort of negative resonance with them at all. But this is something I would love to discuss with you, Paul. Very good. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you very much. <clears throat> it's nice to see you. I'll just say, Peter, that Paul Disco has been joining us uh, and helping us out in our Shanghai here from uh, where, where he is in Oakland and, that, and has also visited us here. So, anyway, I'll connect you two. There's a question in the room. Yes, Brian. Oh, no. Ugetsu beat me by a microsecond. Peter, this is a beautiful talk, and you're offering something really wonderful on a wider venue, and I so wish you could come and be here with us, because, you know, I'm wearing full-on robes. Well, only a seven-dough okay, queso. But I see myself as a customer representative <laughs> for Buddhism and Buddha uh, as a priest. But our effort here in Chicago is to, you know, do our whole style Buddhist practice. And I think we learn a lot from you. And I think it would be really fun for you to, like, see this situation. You know, we, we left a temple that was our space and now occupy a first-floor apartment after my old man tenant died during the pandemic. So there's like, there, this is happening in America, you know, and I think that you just were so articulate and beautiful in the way you present this and so, uh, I want to say open. And I think, you know, we're all learning together how to, how to embody Buddhism in our culture. And so I really thank you for being at the forefront of that. Thank you very much. Thank you. So, you know, I'm uh, much more mindful, uh, perhaps than I appear, of Paul's warning about pruning the tree too, too much. Um, there's nothing more comfortable to sit zazen in than robes. Uh, I have tatami mats in my little zendo 
Uh, I have an altar. I bow in. I do a lot of the formal practices and memorial ceremonies that I learned at Zen Center. They may be abbreviated, but I do them. And I do the chants in Japanese. And actually, they're not even Japanese. No one knows what they are. Uh, but I do them in, to be in continuity with my lineage and uh, the 3,000-year uh, inheritance of this lineage. So I, 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 I don't want to be misunderstood that I'm, I'm trying to cut the Japanese out of our, out of our practice. Um, I, I, there's a quote by Yamada Roshi that I think is in my new book where he's basically saying, you know, first we have to learn the authentic Buddhist voice and then an American voice will arise. So I, I, I'm, it sounds like I'm turning my back on the practice that I was taught in, and that's not the way I like to think about it. I think about it as loosening the robes a little bit and allowing a little more American air to come in and to be sure that my practice is based on the precepts in the moment and that it, it is never, uh, that warmth and compassion is never obliterated by some idea of Japanese formalism. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And, and I had no sense, I hope you not get that from me, that you were trying to prune a tree so much. No, I didn't get it from you, but I think that Paul's caution is my own. Yeah. And so I, I, I never, I, you know, I feel like a seismograph needle that's trying to find like a, a good registry uh, because it's easy to be misunderstood. We're all deluded and we're living in the midst of delusion and people can run off half cocked, including myself, or be misunderstood. So it's, I feel like I'm in constant course correction about this. I didn't get that from you at all. One other thing I wanted to mention is that um, <laughs> I don't know if you sewed your own okesa. I did. Did. So I wondered how you see that practice in the context that you're talking about in terms of vernacular Zen. Well, I loved sewing my robes. I had the good fortune to be sewing under Blanche Hartman and with her. And she was such an informal and kind of loopy, wonderful woman that going to the sewing room just was so relaxing. And we, we would be talking about fixing Dodge trucks or women she'd fallen in love with once. Yeah, as I'm going Namu Kyobutsu and paying it my full attention. So... You know, things exist at the same time. And uh, I, although I didn't sew my brown robe, I did sew my, uh, both my first, my Jukai Raksu and my, uh, my priest Raksu and uh, my Okesa. And those are practices that I think are, they're beyond Japanese. They're, they're Buddhism. Um, that attention to detail, that dedication to the path you're taking on, that stitch by stitch binding yourself to the precepts and the understanding and the teachings, 
I think there's nothing like that in American life. And it's something that we need. So that was my experience. And I'm, I did it again. And my students sew their own rock shoes and cases. Thank you. So, Ryan's in the room, and then there are probably numbers of people on uh, line, but Ryan, you can go first. I'll facilitate the camera. <laughs> Hi, uh, my name's Brian. Um, really appreciate your talk. I've been a big fan of your work my whole life that I've been aware of you, your narration, uh, your various things, and I had no clue that you had this parallel development in Zen practice, but it makes complete sense. Um, but you were never there when I came out of the phone booth in my Ocasa. <laughs> exactly. I saw, I saw you flying in the sky, leaping over buildings, but exactly. never in the phone booth. Um, so in one sense, my comment will be the bore, most boring of all, which is I agree with everything you said. Um, and I'm thrilled that you, who have a prominent name and voice, not only in Zen uh, culture, but in the wider American culture, hopefully this kind, these kinds of ideas will spread further due to your uh, advocacy, because in my whole lifetime of development, I've seen it as one of the most basic problems is how do you learn the teachings, not just of Zen, but any philosophy, without either getting caught totally in the teachings and uh, giving short shrift to cultural instances of it, or lose the teachings completely and get caught completely in cultural instances so that you're either in, in one side of the road or the other, and it seems to me the middle way is that delicate balance of how do we, you know, we don't have to get rid of uh, the Japanese aspects, uh, as you're saying, but the important thing is to, to how do we continue learning and embodying uh, the teachings uh, in every present moment uh, without, you know, getting caught in those cultural entrapments. Uh, it, it strikes me as kind of like staying, re staying in the realization that the finger and the moon really are one thing and not to, to get caught with either the moon or the finger, as it were. So well, thank you very much for, for advocating this kind of thing. Um, one final thing. Um, I'm very familiar with the work of Tony Packer, who in her own way, uh, in the um, Philip Kaplow lineage, uh, oh, yeah. she went, you know, full hog with the robes and the bells and the whistles and everything, and then at some point uh, left all that and tried to uh, and did advocate a practice that was stripped as much as possible of all cultural terminology, etc. you know, uh, and you have uh, Joko Beck, uh, who also did similar kinds of things. So there are a few people that have been also uh, making efforts in this way. So thank you very much for your efforts. Well, you know, that was a really articulate statement of the dilemma. I mean, you put your finger on it. And I think it is the, I think it is the middle way we're seeking, just like Buddha saw the middle way between self-abnegation and, you know, indulgence um, 
And I guess the important thing for me to remember is that every person you meet and talk to is like a bubble of awareness. And there's no hierarchy in that. There's no upper, lower, inner, outer. And if that bubble of awareness teaches you something or has something you can learn from, you take it. And so, I mean, I accept criticism from anyone. And I think that it's always the part of the Sangha to correct each other. I mean, we don't always like it, but we're all practicing together. We're all among the larger population. We've all made this dedication to this practice. And when you see anybody, your teacher, a visiting guest, or a fellow student, that's not, that's veering off course, you have to find a right way to talk to them. But I think as a Sangha member, and particularly as a priest, that's our job. And it doesn't matter what color robe they wear. It's just it's one bubble of awareness communicating with another. And that's what Buddhist practice is, one person at a time. So thank you for that. Thank you for seeing that. Yeah. David, could you call on people online? I think there might. Yes, I think Jodo has a question. I see Jodo's hand. Hello, Jodo. Um, Hi, Peter. So nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. I struggle with uh, being a Zen teacher, but also being anti-authoritarian, especially if I'm the authority. So I try to make some changes. For instance, in Dokusan, we do full bows to each other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm lucky to have a small Sangha, and I have all our, encourage all our Sangha members to give the Sunday Dharma talk. I do the same thing. Uh, I've I've been to many Zen centers, and I think at least half of them just seem way too rigid on form. I was the Eno once when my teacher Shokin was visiting, and I interrupted. I made an announcement about forms, and afterwards, Shokin said, "Don't use the F word." <laughs> I was like, "What?" He said, "Form. It's a four-letter F word." He said, "When you said the word form." Everyone in the room tightened up. Yeah. So that's a struggle. My current thing is, well, the forms are there for the people interested in them, but I'm just not going to run around uh, correcting people. So do you have any comments about that? Yeah. Um, so it's funny. I have a very small sangha. I have eight people that I that I work with. And I'm actually transmitting someone to kind of take over so I can work less. But we practice, I mean, everybody bows to each other. I have everybody doing Dharma talks. And I have the, uh, I have them kind of critiquing too harsh a word, but speaking to one another about how the Dharma talk came across, what their feeling was, trying to refine them all into being better teachers and getting more comfortable with teaching and talking about the Dharma, starting off using maybe developing a Dharma talk off a written text. And then after they've been doing that for a number of weeks, 
finding some incident in their own life, which could be a, a Dharma gate to talk about. So that <clears throat> trying to make their personal experience accessible to other people. The, the thing I think about form <clears throat> or that I try to explain to my students anyway, is that the forms are there to help you. There are no Buddhist cops coming around, you know, to maybe we'll adjust your posture a little bit. But once you've been shown the correct form, then you have to you have to make that work for your body. But if you didn't have a form, you would never have any ruler to measure how you're doing. If you could sit Zazen leaning on one elbow, if you could lay down, if you could do it any way you wanted, you'd never know how you were doing. You'd never have a, like I, I describe the mudra to them as an attention gauge. If your thumbs collapse, if they separate, if they come off, it's an indication to you that your attention has wandered. It's not for someone else to see and correct you. And so I try to take that onus of an objective view away. Suzuki Roshi once said something that stuck with me, really, uh, although I never met him. I've read almost everything he's done. He was talking about how because a, a fact is a fact in New York and a fact in Philadelphia and a fact in Japan, we have a tendency to think that we can see ourselves objectively and to try to see ourselves as a fact. And so maybe what uh, the teacher was saying to you was that when you say the word form, it throws people off into trying to see themselves from the outside. And Suzuki Roshi cautioned that really we want to see ourselves from the inside, from our intuitions and our feelings and our self-corrections and all of that actually should come from inside. And I think maybe it, it can be helpful to people if you explain that, that it's, it's, a, it's a guideline for them to take internally and watch themselves to monitor their own practice. But I think, uh, I think it's a great caution. Yeah, the, the Japanese teachers to you was a great caution. And I appreciate your full bow teacher to student. I do that. Thank you so much. What else in the world? I think I just felt the, the tap of a questioner. Yeah, if, if nobody else is in line in front of me. I don't see anyone else. Is, is there someone else on, on Zoom whose hand I didn't see? I think you're up. When, when you were talking about American Buddhism, it, it made me think about my own experiences, um, including outside of Zen. So um, my first experience as part of a Buddhist congregation was I danced with, um, with a Thai Buddhist congregation here in Chicago when I was in my early um, 20s. And um, I think I've back. And... Um, um, they, they were Theravada and um, Damyu, um, they were Damyu, um, you know, which is a, goes back to King Manku when, when he tried to sort of do what Luther did and purify um, Thai Buddhism. But, um, you know, the people who were dancing, we didn't have that much to do with the monks. I mean, the monks were like, they would come in and 
you know, we, we make food, they eat it first, we get the leftovers. Um, they put holy water on us. Um, but, um, and the lead monk, I think he did um, teach meditation and, and, and he did have some classes that were open um, to non-Thai people, but um, I, I never, I mean, as part of the dance group, I, I didn't have anything to do with that. But but the forms of the um, the dance itself, um, the, you know, did have um, a meditative quality. I mean, that, that when you dance, um, you know, you have to be in the moment, you have to pay attention to your own body and the bodies of people around you and, and, and you have to pay attention to form. Um, and, and I liked that. Um, but, um, and anyhow, I mean, here in Chicago, um, you know, there's a lot of immigrant Buddhist congregations. And, and for a while, I don't know if they're doing it anymore, but for a while, um, there was a um, multi ethnic Buddhist gathering for Bisaka Day that um, people would come together um, from Vietnamese, Korean, um, Burmese, um, Thai, um, and the Nishiren Shon Street people participated. Uh, and, and, and they would um, have um, dance and ceremony together. And we also had um, a women in Buddhism conference for a while that um, was every other year that included um, women from a variety of, of, of Buddhist uh, sanghas, uh, including both ones that were more um, more immigrant-based and one, ones that, that weren't. What is it that attracted you to Zen in particular? Um, well, well, one thing, I belonged, um, I still belong to actually two Jewish congregations. I do at this point consider myself a Jew-boo, but I was looking for a refuge from the arguing. But I'm not going to And ways of dealing with, with my mother, um, who was, and my parents who were going through end of life, and there was a lot of arguing. And... Um, <laughs> And I, I found uh, the 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 um, the I, I was at that time I joined a, um, a sangha that's part of the white white plum lineage, and uh-huh. and there was um, anyway the 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 teachings were very helpful to me, um, but that one the the teacher's fairly eclectic, and so we we did use. Um, you know, like a lot of the, the um, congregations here in Chicago, the teachers have had exposure to different Buddhist traditions. And um, we, I went through the, using Stephen Levine's um, book on conscious living, conscious dying. And I found with the group from that song, and I found that, that helpful. Um, and, um, and we had uh, some, some instruction from people that had, had, studied with um, Joan Halifax on race and that was helpful. So um, that's, but I actually came to that particular song from, from dance too, because um, the, um, the, my um, Hula teacher, um, June Tanoe, she, she took um, 
Donna transmission. And um, thank you for my husband. And uh, so I, I had met um, people from that song because of being in the, the hula group. But um, and anyhow, and then but I've and I've had you know it, I've been I've gone to workshops with some of the Shambhala people. Well, I could help you with Jewish arguments. I can tell you a way to think about Jewish arguments you might find helpful. Because sure. my people are Jews. My people are Sephardic and um, Ashkenazi Jews from North Africa. And my grandfather was an Uzbek, very dangerous people. And my, my mother's people were Ashkenazi Jews. And one thing I realized in China, my grandfather literally killed his horse with a hammer when it bit him. I mean, they were, these were tough guys. So when they argued, things could really get get scary. But one day I realized that Jews seem to ish, argue differently than most other people, most other cultures that I saw, which was that they were arguing about something that was between them. And what they seemed to be trying to do was decide what was true. And once I looked at it that way, it lifted off the personal. It wasn't mom against dad or grandpa against this one or, you know, two old guys in the park fighting and disliking each other. But there was, you know, Jews are wrestlers with God. I mean, that's what their name means. So they were trying to decide what was true. And the question of the truth is a passionate and deeply held pursuit in Jewish culture. But I learned to actually appreciate that whole argumentative and, uh, you know, on the one, and, and it's why so many Jews are Buddhists, it comes from that, that openness to on the one hand and on the other hand. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so I don't know, I think maybe you could relax about it. Yeah, no, I, I feel fairly relaced about it. I mean, Sylvia, oh, okay. they gave me permission to be both. But, um, and, and the Jewish socialist tradition is also important to me. My family tradition also. My cousin, my mother's cousin was the first man fired from the New York City school system for being a communist. And he sued them 28 years later and got 28 years back pay. <laughs> well, I, I don't know if you knew David Graeber or, or, or who he was, but um, I'm, I'm an anthropologist, and, and uh, David was a, um, uh, he was a student with me, and um, he, he he also you know was an anarchist and a, and and, and um, you know practiced anthropology from that that perspective. But his, his mother was in the Pins and Needles um, review in the, uh, in the 30s in New York. So, Eve, if you have another question, I want to give time for other yeah. people. But I, anyway, I just wanted to say I also I started reading your, uh, your book on, on um, the, the Tonto and, and the Lone Ranger, and, and I, I, I hope that you can come. Tygen said you did a mask workshop here. In 2016, and I hope we can come to it. Well, thanks. Maybe so. I'm, I'm that much older, but I still get around. Wait, do you have a comment or question? Yeah. Um, so, something that, uh, <clears throat> thank you, Peter, for, for the amazing talk. 
something that I think is a wonderful, um, maybe it's not American, but a wonderful expression of our secular Buddhist practice here is just having team treats after basically everything that we do. And what? sorry, I missed that word. Oh, uh, tea. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, tea and sweets. Tea, tea and treats. Yeah, yeah. So oh, yeah. We have some cookies, and and we just chit chat. And there's not much space in formal Zen for chit chat. And it's the way that we live our lives. Otherwise, you know, we're always just chit chatting with people around us, and that's really what builds community. So that's something that I remember fondly from my Christian upbringing, because we would always do this after service. And so I think that's a wonderful way in which maybe the robes are a little bit looser and maybe we are leafing out into our Judeo-Christian heritage in a way that's healthy and not um, rejecting anything else, but helps build community in a less formal way. Yeah, that's a lovely insight. One of the, uh, one of the great things is like, you know, at the end of a session there's always a little virtual party where, you know, the weak solitude is explodes into goodwill and cheer. And I think those kind of little things like, you know, picnics and brunches and getting together for occasions of chit chat are critically important. Yeah. I agree. I and just wanted to, to stress that. Sure enough. So thank you so much, Peter. Um, we will have tea and treats. One of the thing, one of the limitations of online and Zoom is that we haven't figured out how to deliver treats across the, the virtual boundary. Yes, I know that. It's wonderful. Electronic cookie is not satisfying. <laughs> I think Dogen said that, right? <laughs> I think it was Dogen or Dylan. I forget. <laughs> well, they, yeah. They, they, but I, I do want to say, you know, we're a little bit over our usual time, but while Peter Coyote is here, I really want this, you know, to share this opportunity. So if anybody else online has a question or comment, if anybody else in the room, let's please take time for that. Yes, please. Hi there. My name's Jake. Uh, this is actually my first time attending uh, the Zen Center. Um, thank you. So it's, it's actually mildly off-putting for me to, uh, uh, see some like very formal stuff, but also just to hear about what evidently is a lot of consternation about the state of Zen in America and Zen centers and scandals. <laughs> uh, so my question is, what's your, what do you say to folks like me who maybe come here looking for soup, uh, but then just hear about you know, different recipes to make soup and eat soup. Like, what's, uh, what do we do with ourselves? <laughs> well, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, the, soup is, the soup is zazen. Sitting zazen is the soup. And having the patience to sit through boredom and to just let your mind relax and to become intimate with your mind and body. And in this posture of zazen... It becomes really easy to accept things as they are. And that's a hallmark of Buddhist practice. 
to see things as they actually are. And so, yeah, the criticism might be off-putting. It's probably a little bit like professional shop talk to you and and uh, probably not so interesting. But I'd encourage you to just think of sitting itself as the soup, as the nourishment. And if I don't know if you have a daily practice, but if you do this every day for a month, you'll find a sense of interior space opening up. And the longer you do it, the more clearly and open you'll feel, and the more you'll be able to see things kind of for what they actually are. Suzuki Roshi said, if you don't live in a monastery, you have to be very patient because you have to put up with all sorts of stupidities and people like us discovering, you know, discussing the fine points of this finger or that finger or it, but they're not serious criticisms of Zen practice. They are, they're more like professional discussions and you're not yet a professional. And so a lot of this doesn't mean much to you, but I would say that the core practice is to just sit and to try to do it regularly every day. Even if you can just do 20 minutes once or twice a day, you'll start to feel the nourishment of the soup and you'll start to get results and feelings that will make perfect sense to you. And you won't need anybody else's uh, explanation. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for asking. Good. Other people here or online? I see Nilsan's hand. Oh, good. So Tigan, maybe this will be the last question because my girlfriend is getting ready to leave and I'm not going to see her for some days and I don't want her to sneak out while I'm talking here. Okay. Last question. Last uh, comment. Yozan. Hi. Hi, Yozan. Good morning. Thank you for the wonderful talk. Actually, I was just um, uh, dialing in to remind you to uh, uh, to say goodbye. Thank you for a wonderful talk. And uh, my question will wait for another time. <laughs> Oh, you don't have a question? Oh, I do have a question. But a lot of questions. <laughs> okay, I'll try to be quick. Uh, for some, there, don't be quick. I, I don't mean to rush you at all. Okay. Uh, there is always form. There is always form. If we do not, um, if we are not practicing uh, the forms that we are, um, we learn from our teachers and temple environments and so on, uh, we will be uh, embodying and acting in some other form, even if we aren't aware of it, etc. Um, for some years, I uh, was uh, active uh, with a group on a university campus here in Chicago um, uh, under Tygen's guidance and as kind of a satellite um, uh, or a uh, uh, yeah a satellite of ancient dragon. Uh, I'm no longer doing that, but I continue to interact with many people that I got to know in those years. And um, there are a handful of people who, um, I mean, this may be reflective of deficiencies in how I have presented things over the years, but now I have a number of people who've made serious, serious commitments to uh, Zazen and people who have uh, uh, made very, very, um, 
sincere approaches to, to Dogen. Um, and people who, for whatever reason, uh, are now coming to me, uh, you know, and wanting, uh, to continue to engage, uh, with me in Buddhist practice, but have zero interest in the forms, uh, are very resistant to, uh, being an ancient dragon. And I mean, some of these people, I've known that for years and I've encouraged them, but they're just, you know, they're more on that individualistic, anarchistic side of things. And the, the dilemma is how do I engage them without imposing, um, you know, without being aggressive and imposing certain kinds of forms, but at the same time, not just having it be a free-for-all, not just having it be me talk, them talking to me when they need to talk to me. I don't know if that's a coherent question, but it's a, it's a yeah. real dilemma. It's a very coherent question. And it's uh, apropos. So, you know, usually, uh, usually a girl's not going to let you kiss her until you've had some conversations and she's had some feelings about whether you're reliable, honorable, you know, what your intentions are. And then the kiss itself is a form of expression. So one of the things I point out to people who tell me they're not into organized religion or they're not into this or they're not into that is to point out that the self that's refusing these things is the self that's giving you difficulty. And if you're not willing to look at that and try something new, you want some pill to swallow that will change your mind. That's not what Zen offers. Zen offers you a way of changing your life. And the tool that we use is Zazen. So I'm perfectly happy to be your friend, but if you're not going to sit Zazen, if you're not going to try it, let's not talk about spiritual matters because that's what I'm, that's what I'm entitled to talk about. And I know that works. And you must have some doubts about the way you're doing things or you wouldn't be talking to me about this. So let's just say, who's resisting? Who's resisting? And I want you to meet that person. And until you meet that person who's resisting, you're not going to soften that resistance. Until you get to the bottom of your own crankiness and your own resistance, your life is not going to open up, and the problems that you're having are not going to disappear. So if you want to have a cup of coffee together and talk about stuff, fine. I'll do it as I have time. But I can't make a commitment to you if you're not willing to try something outside of your wheelhouse. Because there's not enough time in your life to do that, Nielsen. Thank so you. I don't think you're imposing, you're inviting. Thank you. That's very helpful. Thank you. So can I just say this has been a wonderful group and great fun for me and a, a real honor to be invited again to talk, and I'd be happy to do it again. But now I want to go see my fiance before she runs away. Okay, thank you, Peter. We'll uh, do this again sometime. Thank, thank you. you all. Have a good day. Thank you, Peter. Sure enough. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Thank you. Bye.